a big watcher of sports. Not surprising to anyone. But I am a big watcher of sports movies, especially 80s sports movies, which are incredible. And I love, my favorite part of any 80s sports movie is the montage, the training montage. Right? They're, 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 the Karate Kid does it, Miracle on Ice, that's a little more recent. They do a good one. Um, Rocky is the best. Right? You see him wailing on the side of the feet. You see him doing push-ups, running up the stairs of the Philadelphia Museum. You know, we got Eye of the Tiger, we're going to fly now or something, playing in the background. And then what, what Rocky does, as you continue into the sequels, which are just as marvelous, is it starts developing the art of the montage. Not only now do we use the montage to show you a lot of training in a little time, but we also use flashback montages to remind you, just in case you're stupid, what was important in the earlier films. And then by Rocky III, we're using montages to remind you what was important earlier in this movie. In fact, in Rocky III, and this will get to the Bible at some point, don't you worry, Maggie, but in Rocky III, later on, in like the fourth montage, we're montaging the earlier montages. And it's just saying, this is the stuff Again, in case either you've been, you know, doing something else while the movie was on, or you're not very bright, this is the stuff that's important. You've seen it three or four times now, and so you know it's important. Now, to some degree, Luke sort of does that in the book of Acts. He can't quite montage because it's a different medium, but he will repeat in order to emphasize we talked about this with the conversion of Saul. Saul, a persecutor of the church, coming to faith. Such an important event. Just a seminal event in the life of the church. And we read it several times throughout the book of Acts. In fact, you hear it a couple times, right within a chapter or so of it happening. And the same thing happens with this text today in Acts chapter 10. Because here we have a, an incredibly important event. This is the conversion of Cornelius and his household. We hear this told, this narrative, three times over the next couple chapters, and we sort of have it in three tenses because it is predicted in visions beforehand. Those are related to us. Then the thing itself is narrated, and then when Peter and Cornelius get together, they're both like, well, let me tell you what happened with me. And we hear them related in the past tense. Sort of like those old... I don't know, Toastmasters or those public speaking things that would always say, tell people what you're going to tell them, then tell them, then tell them what you told them. And at that point, everyone's you know, fiddling with their phones or daydreaming or something, but, you know, make sure you do this again and again. Well, somehow, Luke pulls it off without really boring us. But the point is that this particular story, this narrative, the longest single narrative in the entire book of Acts, all 28 chapters, is pivotal. It is just as pivotal as the conversion of Saul, who we now call the Apostle Paul. And yet, we don't think of it, I don't think, as quite as pivotal. People don't talk about Cornelius nearly so much as they ought to. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, you rarely ever see a church named St. Barnabas. In fact, I don't know that I've ever encountered one, even though he is such an important figure. I've never seen a St. Cornelius either. Very few people name their children Cornelius, even in places with a large Christian population. In fact, I can only think of two who go by Cornelius, both of them theologians from Calvin Seminary in the 20th century. Cornelius Van Til, Cornelius Plantinga, who I think on some of his books he goes by Neil, but he, you know, he goes by his full name too, Cornelius. It's a good name because this is such...
such a pivotal point in church history. And yet, and I don't want to harp on this, but we neglect it. When I looked up the conversion of Saul, because I like to put a little image on the sermon when I put it online and put it on the podcast, I looked up conversion of Saul and I was like, oh yeah, there are so many beautiful Renaissance paintings. And there are so many modern depictions. There's so many different ways that we've seen Saul's conversion to Christianity on the road to Damascus portrayed for us. But if you look up Peter and Cornelius, or Peter's vision of the sheet from heaven, the stuff related to this chapter, it's all like first tries. And I mean like first try drawing anything. Right? The, the animals are all, it's like when Napoleon Dynamite drew the liger and the face was way too human. It, it, it's neglected, and so I want us to really focus in on this guy. So if you're not familiar with Cornelius, I'll tell you a little background on him. First of all, most important thing maybe in this text is that he's a Gentile. He's not someone who's part of the Old Covenant people, Israel, which has been our focus from the beginning of the Old Testament, even through the Gospels. Remember Jesus telling the, the Syrophoenician woman, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. And he is a Roman. He is a high-ranking military official. He is in charge of a good chunk of what's called the Italian Regiment. And this is a big deal back then. This would mean he is very rich and prominent, and he is someone who just guarantees, commands respect wherever he goes. He's a centurion, which means he's in charge of 80 to 100 men in the army, paid about five times what your average soldier would be. And he's not the first centurion we've come across in the scriptures. And what's interesting to me is that God, inspiring the events here and, and in his sovereign will, causing these things to come about, and then inspiring the evangelists as they wrote down the Gospels, he highlights good characteristics of centurions who are people we would expect to be only bad. These are, these are people who are killing machines for Rome and yet to challenge and flip upside down our expectations. One of the first times we come across a centurion, he comes up to Jesus and says, I, I need you to help me. My, my servant, who's like a son to me, is sick and almost at the point of death. And Jesus says, okay, take me to your home. We'll see in a minute why that was such a bizarre thing for Jesus to say. So revolutionary, bring me to your home. Let me see your servant. And the guy says, I don't even want to bring you into my home. I know you're a Jew. I'm a Gentile. I know that it's far. If you just say the word here and now, I know, I believe my son will be healed. And Jesus commends his faith. Among Israel, I have not seen faith like this. Next time I think that we see a centurion, if I'm not mistaken, is at the cross. And yes, he took part in killing Jesus. That was his job. And yet when he looks at him and looks at all that has transpired on that Good Friday, he says, surely this is the son of God. Expressing faith. And then when we're introduced to Cornelius the centurion, we find that he's what is called a God-fearer. Just a semi-technical term, meaning someone who's a Gentile, they're not actually a Jew, but they are sympathetic to the Jews. They were a very important group of people at this time and in this part of the world. They had not yet gone through a process of proselytizing, of becoming a Jew, which for him would have involved circumcision and like a ceremonial washing, almost like a baptism, 
really? And then entering into a life of very strictly keeping and holding to the ceremonial laws. He hadn't been through all that, but he was intrigued by the monotheism of Judaism, that they worship one God, a creator God, a God who is all-powerful. He's coming out of this Roman situation where you've got gods all over the place and who knows who's powerful and who does what. He's intrigued by their ethics. He's in, intrigued by the teaching. And so he, this, man, this man Cornelius would have been attending the synagogue. He had to sit in the back, but he would attend the synagogue and listen to the reading of the scriptures, listen to the teaching, be there for the prayers. Almost certainly he was supporting the synagogue out of his pocket financially. And yet again, he was held back from full participation. Almost like when they gathered together, he was just watching from a distance. And yet in his own devotional life, Cornelius, he was very much intimately connected to God. He was praying frequently. He prayed often. He prayed every day, it seems, at prescribed times, like Jews often did. And he prayed not to the pantheon of Greek and Roman idols, but to the one true God of heaven and earth, the God of Israel. He is maybe what we would call in today's Christianese a seeker. And, and if you want to know about his character, it's summed up here in verse 2. A devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. I, I pointed out the past couple of times we were in Acts, the emphasis on fearing God in chapter 9. And that leads us right into chapter 10 where we see this God-fearer who is not a Jew but a Gentile. The church had been almost exclusively Jewish to this point. Remember that the, the big row was between two different kinds of Jews, Palestinian and Hellenistic Jews, Hebraic and, and Greek, basically. But now we are moving out further, and this was part of the plan from the very beginning. And I told you that, that Jesus' great commission, you're going to go in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, not only gave them kind of a battle plan and a checklist, but it makes the literary framework of this book. We see it moving out further and further, and now we're moving out to the outermost ring. This man is someone who feared God, and the gospel is going to come to him, and spoiler alert, he is going to embrace it. It's significant that he feared God. When we read about what the, the religious life was in the Roman army, Tertullian tells us essentially they worshipped their banners, their standards. Like, remember uh, a few good men? Maybe not. You can't handle a truth. That would be uh, there was a guy who put on a stand and he said, what was drilled into me in my particular setting was unit, core, God, country. Right? This group of guys, then this, this, this bigger group of guys, then God. Then, and and that, that was the same sort of thing. There, there was a religious element to our group. Our little unit of guys, we depend entirely on each other. And so there was almost a, a religious reverence of worshiping their particular standards. And yet this centurion, above any standard, above any group, above any human loyalty, worshiped the God of heaven. When we find him, he's praying in the ninth hour, which is three o'clock, and that's significant. You may remember that at three o'clock, very significant events happened when Jesus was being crucified. Three o'clock is the hour of the evening sacrifice in the temple. 
This is the hour when animals are offered and there is the visible covering over of sin. And this is when he chooses to worship. He can't go into the temple, but he clearly knows several things. First of all, there's a God, not a bunch of gods. He knows pretty well that this is, he's at least somewhat invested, that this one God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or he wouldn't be involved as he is. He knows that he has sins that need to be forgiven, or he wouldn't be praying at this time and, and, and intrigued by this system where there is covering of sin by the blood of a substitute. And even though his prayers as he offers them, they, they, they're incomplete at best. They don't mention Christ. He doesn't know what Jesus has done for him. They're not even fully Jewish prayers, but God hears them, and God moves his hand and answers them. This man was seeking God, while God may be found, and God reaches out. And whenever I hear this kind of terminology, I always think back to, to Romans and how Paul in Romans quotes Isaiah, when he says, there is none who seeks God, no, not one. And that is true unless God is at work. Unless God is first seeking us and preparing us to encounter him. God is at work here. God came in the person of Christ to seek and save the lost. And he's coming now to seek and save Cornelius particularly. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And the angel who spoke to him departed. And he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything, sent them to Joppa. This is bizarre for a man who doesn't even know the specifics of the true God and his scriptures and hadn't been raised into them, hadn't entered the covenant, being encountered by an angel and being given this specific of instructions and being told that God has heard his prayers and what's more, that his giving of alms, his giving to the poor, out of just a sense of mercy and love, had entered God's presence as a memorial. What does that mean? Well, go to Leviticus 2. You know, when you read through Leviticus and you're like, oh, my favorite part, when it describes all the different offerings and how many epos of this and how many... Well, as you're reading that, you come across part of an offering that is given as a memorial offering. It's grain mixed with oil and frankincense, and as it's offered up to God, it is a sweet aroma to his nostrils, and he, he loves to smell it when it's offered with the right heart. Well, this man, Cornelius, can't go to the temple. He can't be part of this system of offerings, and yet his acts of love and mercy all the same have gone up to God as if they were one of these Offerings. Reminds me of Jesus, again, quoting the prophets, would often say, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Some of the, the latter prophets, the minor prophets, again and again, would, would rant about how you're making all the right sacrifices and offerings in the temple, but you're not doing it with the right heart. 
circumcise your heart because when you think these things are going up as a sweet smell and aroma to God, they actually stink. He wants mercy more than he wants you going through the motions. And Cornelius, is, his very life has been going up into heaven, smelling sweet, and God has noticed. It doesn't mean he merits salvation. It means God has been at work preparing his heart, and it is now prepared. And again, notice the, the deep connection here between the horizontal and the vertical. This is not just an up-and-down relationship we have with God. Oh, I'm right with God because I said the right prayer, and now I go to church every once in a No, no, no. The horizontal also indicates where your heart is. Once again, we see that. The horizontal relationship between Cornelius and those whom he has been showing God's love and showing mercy and giving gifts indicates his heart. There was nothing in the Roman values of the day that would put an emphasis on giving aid or charity to strangers unless that was a way that it could bring you public honor. Okay, then I might do it in order to increase my own fame and my own name. But this man is doing these things out of the right heart, a heart that's being prepared to accept the gospel. Immediately when he's told these things by the angel, he obeys. And it makes me think about that earlier centurion that we encountered in Matthew 8. He said to Jesus, hey, I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. And when he hears this instruction, he recognizes the authority of the one who gave it, and he goes. He obeys. Cut to Peter the next day. There's been enough time. It's, it's 30 miles, 32 miles uh, down from Java to Caesarea, right? And, and, and so the, the travel has taken a while. But Peter now is preparing uh, to eat. He goes up on top of the house. He's going to pray. God's got to prepare him for this encounter as well. God is not just working in your heart and your life. God is working these things out in others' hearts and their lives. And when he brings his plans into place, he has been at work everywhere. We have to recognize that. Get out of our own heads and start thinking communally, thinking as if we are part of a body that God has given a task to do. Well, Peter, he's the head of the the apostles, he is a, very much making great strides in his sanctification, but he's still thinking in old categories. And it's hard sometimes to break out of old patterns of thinking, old habits, old prejudices. Now, Peter naturally assumed from the start, as did all the apostles, Jesus came to kind of restore Israel to a place of prominence. He came for Israel, he's going to give us the sword back, we're going to throw Rome off of our backs, even at the beginning of the book of Acts. Remember what they asked Jesus mere seconds before he ascended into heaven? Is it now? Is now when you're going to restore Israel? Well, Peter has seen some things since then. He has seen some Greeks come to faith, although they came to faith by first becoming Jews, proselytizing, and then came to faith in Jesus. But that stressed him a little bit. He was, he was very narrow. We, we see that about Peter in the Gospels. He's stretching a little. Then he's seen something far greater, which is Samaritans. And he looked at them with his own eyes and said, I can't deny it. They have the Holy Spirit. They, they've been granted repentance. These Samaritans are Christians now following Jesus. But, eh, I mean, maybe they're just close enough. They're not exactly, they're diluted, yes, but they have the first five books of the Old Testament. 
they have this history, they trace it back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're, they're almost part of our nation. And so maybe that maybe the light they have is just bright enough that they can then enter into following Jesus, stretching him a little bit more. But, but what hadn't occurred to Peter is that the gospel is for people who are floundering in the dark with no light. That's the light comes and shines in the darkness, and that's what it does. That's its role. That the gospel does not require that we get good enough and follow God's laws for a time and, and go jump through a, a number of hoops in order to show that we deserve to have forgiveness and be raised to newness of life. In fact, the whole thing rests on acknowledging I don't deserve it. And Peter's about to get stretched a lot more in his thinking. This is not an entirely new dynamic, by the way. All the way back in the Old Testament, we see the same thing. Book of Jonah, remember that? We, we lived through that three, four years ago. Jonah was a prophet, and continually his prophecies were brought to the people of Israel. And then one day he gets his orders, go to Nineveh. Nineveh, the capital of a Gentile empire, and bring a message of repentance to them. He thought, not happening. Fled to where, anyone? Joppa. In Joppa, he bought himself a ticket to go all the way to the end of the earth in the other direction. He's going to have a little Spanish holiday, but God saw him there in Joppa and said, you're not, you're not making it, buddy. I'm, I sent you to the Gentiles in Nineveh. You're going to the Gentiles in Nineveh. And, and there was a fish. It was this whole thing. You probably know the story. But I don't think it's a coincidence that all of this is taking place in Joppa, where God is sending Peter to Gentiles to bring a message of repentance once again. It's not weird that he's on the roof. It, it would be weird if you were driving down the street, you saw someone sitting on their roof waiting for dinner. In the way their, their homes were set up then, there was always a, a, a staircase on the outside that went up to a flat roof. On the roof, you'd have an awning. You would sit out there to get away from the, all the activity down below. You could, nice place to nap, nice place to feel the breeze, especially Simon living on the sea. You'd get the nice salty sea air blowing through, cooling you, blowing away the stink of the tannery that was right nearby. So it would be a good place to go and pray, and people often would. They'd go in and pray on their roofs. And, and when he goes and he prays and he hears a message from God, even this isn't entirely new to Peter. He's heard the voice of God from heaven before at Jesus' baptism, at Jesus' transfiguration. He knows the drill. This is God speaking. And he answers by calling the voice Lord. And yet, he doesn't submit to what the voice says. He's told when he sees this sheet coming down with all kinds of animals, Clean and unclean. Four-legged animals, reptiles, birds, all sorts of different kind of animals. He's told, rise, kill, and eat. And he says, not happening. I have never done such a thing. I have never eaten anything unclean, and I'm not about to start now. It has been suggested by some that maybe Peter wasn't being rebellious in any way. Maybe what was going on is that Peter saw this as a test, and he wanted to pass the test. And so he said, oh, no, not, not, not going to do it. Give me an A on this one. I don't think so, though. I think what we're seeing here is Peter falling back into the old Simon role that he knew so well. 
Remember, it was Peter who said to Jesus when he said, I am going to go to Jerusalem and be rejected and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Peter said, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Who says far be it from you? I have people say far be it from me, but far be it from you. That takes some moxie, especially when talking to the Lord himself. He, he knows what's best, maybe even better than Jesus. And so he asserts himself. The idea of killing and eating something unclean is revolting to him, so he revolts a little bit. And, and he's standing on the Old Testament. When he does Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, describe what animals are clean and everything else is unclean, and you're not to eat it. And we know why Leviticus 20 tells us, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. And some of the heroes of the Old Testament are heroes because they refuse to eat the unclean foods. Daniel and his companions, they were the first ones to do the Daniel fast. And when they did it, it was because they were not about to eat unclean food and be made unclean. They would remain separate. There is even a little precedence for pushing back when God tells you to do something that would otherwise be unclean. I'm not going to tell you exactly what it was, but God told Ezekiel to do something gross in order to be a kind of object lesson for the people of Israel. And Ezekiel said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself. From my youth till now I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. And God sort of backed off and said, okay, we'll do it a different way and get the same point across. But now God's not backing down. He says to him, do not call common or do not call unclean what God has said is clean. If God declares it clean, it's clean. And this whole thing happens three times. The sheet comes down from heaven. There's the animals, all different kinds of animals, clean and unclean. By the way, the clean animals there would have been tainted by being with the unclean animals. That's why he couldn't just go and, and pick a good one. And every time he says, no, I'm not going to do it. And God tells him, do not call unclean what God has declared clean. Three times. Reminds me a bit of the three times that Jesus reinstates Peter after the three times that Peter had denied Jesus. Perhaps at this point, God's like, okay, if you're going to get something through this guy's thick skull, you just say it three times. I sometimes think that's my wife's philosophy with me. You want to get this on through to this guy? Just say it, just say it two, three times. After the threefold repetition of this vision, three men arrive at the house on the last, or the first leg, rather, of a three-day round journey. And remember, of course, that this is a story that's told three times in the next couple of chapters. There is great emphasis here on perhaps the number three. Perhaps we should be conscious of that and the Trinity and all that it entails. But also just emphasis on this story itself. These men have found their way to Simon the Tanner. They didn't have a GPS. They just had a nose. And they knew a Tanner would be in this city of Caesarea and would be on the, the seashore, because they needed that for, for the work of being a tanner, and so they followed their nose like Tucan Sam, found their way there, and they knock on the door. And just at that moment, God says to him, there are three men here. You're going to go with them. You're going to go into the home of a Gentile, and you're going to bring the gospel there. And suddenly it clicks for Peter exactly what's going on. And no, note, once again, just like with Saul and Ananias, that if God is going to tell one person, hey, I'm going to 
something with another guy, or he's going to God tells both people. He clues them both in. There's no surprises for either of them. If someone comes to you and says, God told me that you were going to X, you tell them you'll let them know, and God confirms it for you as well. But this is a, this is a big deal. It's easy to gloss over. When, when Saul showed up at Peter's door, and he wanted to meet with the apostles, Saul, who had been persecuting the church, trying to destroy the church, dragging people off the prison, that was unsettling. But for a Roman military official to show up in military uniform would be very, very scary. This is a time when the Jewish people and the Roman military, there's tensions, there's fighting. It's about to blow in not too long. And you know where all of this is stemming from and is about to come to a head in uh, 66, I think, AD? Caesarea. Because that is the, the uh, capital, as far as Rome is concerned, of Judea. That's the, the headquarters of their occupation of the Holy Land. And, and, and when he sees these people, there's got to be a lot of baggage. I'm sure fresh in his mind is still the memory of watching Roman soldiers torture and kill Jesus. And yet Peter has grown in his faith. And when he hears these instructions, like Cornelius, he obeys. He submits immediately. He accepts these men and brings them into the house. It would be hard to overemphasize how important this is and how hard it would be. From boyhood, as a good, observant Jew, Peter would have been taught, you do not go into the home of a Gentile, you do not have them come into your home, and you certainly do not have table fellowship with them. But he has been told now, do not call unclean what God has declared clean, and he brings these Gentiles in. They share a meal. They sleep under the same roof. And then they travel together. What has happened? Well, in Hebrews 8, we're told, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Once again, we see hospitality at the core of the Christian life, bringing people into one's home and providing for their needs. And in this case, it is a more important thing because it's not just providing for fellow Christians. I'll put you up here, you put me up there because we're in the same boat. No, now he's providing for unbelievers and those who could do great damage and violence to the church. I think about King Saul when, when he said, I, I can't bear the thought. I can't bear the thought that someone would say of me, these uncircumcised men killed him and tells his armor bearer, just run me through, just do me in. That the thought that they thought that lowly of the, those who were uncircumcised, unkosher, unclean. And suddenly Peter's being told, no, no, tell those who are unclean to come to the water and be made clean. Washed in the blood of the Lamb. Their sins washed away. Though they were once crimson, now they are white as snow. I think it's significant that God tells Peter to go to Cornelius, not the other way around. Because Peter was there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the core. He was there when the, the next step out went to Samaria. He went and saw with his own eyes what God was doing. And now he is going to go yet further to the Roman capital of Judea. To the place named Caesarea, named after Caesar Augustus. And bring the gospel personally further out even into the homes of Gentiles. And when he arrives, we have this weird little... Have you ever had an awkward first encounter with somebody? This one's really awkward. Peter steps into the room. Cornelius 
worship? And Peter says, no, 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 get up. What are you doing? You want me to be zapped by lightning? I'm just a man like you. Don't, don't worship me. It's possible to translate that, that uh, verb that he fell down out of respect even. Perhaps it's just that it's ingrained in him that you show deference to someone who ranks more highly than you and he sees Paul doing this. Perhaps he did think it was someone to be worshipped. The Syriac, the old Syriac translation, uh, says that he, he was so excited to meet Cornelius that he said, hey, kneel! And misunderstanding him, he knelt. That's not, that's not true. That's not real. Whatever the case, he tells him, get up. No, this isn't a situation where you're a second-tier believer. It's not like you sit in the back of the synagogue because you haven't jumped through all the hoops. We're equals before God. We're both equally unmeriting His favor, and we are both equally covered by His blood by grace through faith. In fact, I got a sermon about that. And he begins to preach. And he preaches to Cornelius and his household and his friends who we gathered together and all the men that Peter brought from Joppa and the servants who lived there. And God had prepared their hearts. And this is, this is some of the most effective preaching we see in the whole Bible. You know, sometimes you might be able to tell if you come to church and you go, wow, the preacher wasn't as prepared as usual. Or he wasn't as prepared as he should have been. Maybe there was a, a number of people in the hospital or a death that week or something and, and there wasn't enough time. Well, you need to be prepared as well when you come to church. To hear the gospel preached. Your hearts need to be prepared. You need to be in prayer. God, prepare my heart so that it will be fertile soil for your word. And God had been preparing all of these people. The Spirit had tilled the ground of every heart, breaking up the, the hard-packed earth. So that we'll see next week that when Peter began sowing the seed of the gospel, it lands on good soil. They were prepared. We see that Peter's got one thing on his mind. His very first, how did I get all the way over here? His very first words uh, to Cornelius in verse 28, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent me. And they're like, uh, you tell us. We're supposed to hear a message from you. And then when he begins preaching, look at verse 34. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is what's on his mind. God has now shown me something. There's no favoritism. And we need to have that as our perspective in the church, that God does not show favoritism when it comes to those who would hear the gospel, those who would respond. There is no favoritism, whether it's a white-collar person walking around perfectly buttoned up and, and together. Someone's going to come to the funeral tomorrow with sagging shorts on, and I'm going to have a moment of, what are you doing? And I'm going to have to override that. God doesn't care. God sees the heart. There's going to be someone who's going to sneer when I preach the gospel or scoff, maybe even audibly. Lisa told me she was dealing with that for a while, preaching at the, the mission. Someone, whenever she would mention the cross, 
Now, when these things happen, we have to override that, that Simon sense of, oh, yeah, of course you're rejecting the gospel. You don't deserve it like we do. And instead embrace this Petrine understanding that all of us are equally undeserving. I remember driving by uh, a few months ago uh, after church. Uh, we were on our way out. I looked over at uh, it was a marijuana shop there. Then a guy walked out. I made eye contact with him, smiled, and he puked on the sidewalk. And I remember thinking, ah, oh, pathetic. Just so pathetic. We're coming from church. He's coming from in there. What a, what a way to live. And the Holy Spirit just convicted me. What are you thinking? You're better than that guy? You deserve grace more than that guy? To think that is proof that you don't even understand what grace is. And I had to take that and internalize it and repent. See, this is what Galatians 3.28 is actually about. It's used for everything but this. But when we hear there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, but all are one in Christ Jesus, it's talking about how we are all on equal standing before him, or rather equally kneeling down on our face before the cross. There is no favoritism. There is favor. And we're shown favor, unmerited favor. It's called grace in the scriptures, not based on favoritism, or none of us would even be in his family. Rather, we're accepted based only on his own mercy, his own love, and his own giving us gifts that we do not deserve. And we see those gifts here. Faith, baptism, the Holy Spirit is poured out on this household. He's gone now, Cornelius, from being a second-class citizen in the synagogue to being a brother, not only of Peter and all the Christians, but of Christ himself. And notice that, that before his conversion, Luke described Cornelius as devout, generous, God-fearing, upright, righteous, well-spoken of by all of God's people. And yet he needs to be saved. There's nothing we can do to reform ourselves and make ourselves good enough to stand before God and be accepted. The only thing we can do is to be in a state of repentance and faith. To bow down before the cross and say, Lord, I, I, I deserve nothing but wrath. I bring nothing but sin. Save me. I'm yours, Jesus. Save me. This has been re-emphasized over and over again so far in Acts, over ten chapters. We have the Ethiopian unit. He's seeking. He's reading the scriptures. He's trying to understand who is this this suffering servant, who, who is it who's going to come and save us? We, we saw Saul, who we, we call him Paul. He, he's trying to serve God with zeal. Now we see Cornelius. He's praying all the time, ceaselessly. And yet human righteousness or an interest in things of God, even great human zeal cannot make us right in God's eyes. Cornelius has risen to where he is because of his self-discipline and his obedience and loyalty. And yet the only obedience that can bring him into the presence of God is obeying the call to repent and believe. Only by recognizing that in the midst of all of those animals, you and I are not the clean ones. We're like the lizards, the bats and the bugs and the shellfish, the, the, the creepy things. That despite being rich and prominent and powerful and kind, Cornelius had to recognize 
I only enter God's presence as an act of mercy and grace. Harry Ironside, a great revivalist, told a story, a very personal story, about when his father was dying. His father had been a believer most of his life. And he was weak on his deathbed, gasping and, and murmuring and trying to say something. And he kept saying, a great sheet and wild beasts and that. A great sheet and wild beasts. And a friend who was nearby recognized this from, from Acts 10. He opened it up and found the spot in his King James Bible. And he said, John, it says, creeping things. A great sheet and wild beasts and, and creeping things. And Ironside's father said, oh yes, that is how I got in. Just a poor, good-for-nothing, creeping thing. But I got in, saved by grace. We're not the clean animals. We're not the ones who can stand back and say, well, isn't it nice that God let them into his presence as well as us? No, we're the creeping things. You and I. And when we truly understand how God saved us, just like it did for Peter, it clicks. This moment of, wait a minute, if God could save me, there is no one who is outside of the reach of his saving grace, his strong arm. There is no one outside of hope that they will repent and believe. Not the person that I see puking outside of the pot shop. Not the guy swearing loudly into his phone while he walks shirtless down Cedar Street. Not anyone who I might be tempted to judge and push aside and think, oh, isn't it a shame that that person's like that? Otherwise, I might have told them about Jesus. We're all the creeping things. The bats, the bugs, the shellfish. We're saved by grace. Do not call unclean or common what God has declared clean. The gospel goes to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And because this thing has shifted everything for us, we have to be willing, like Peter, to follow that through and change our understanding and challenge our prejudices. One big danger, I think, here is that the world has shifted this backwards so that when people preach on this, I have to stop and say, hold on, don't call clean what God has declared unclean. Don't go too far on riding the pendulum in the other direction. But we've got to be willing to do what Peter did here. He was meditating on that vision when those men arrived. Some, some of the old translations say he was wondering, which to me makes it sound like he was just like, huh, that was weird. What was that about? But no, the word in the Greek actually means to think intensely. It's the only time this word is used. Intense thought. Maybe a good translation would be he was grappling with what could this mean. He was wrestling with what could this mean. At first, his firm convictions caused him to refuse, even to rebuke God when he was told, this is what you are to do. Get up. I told you you're going to be fishers of men. Now you're going to be, you're, you're going to be fishing for reptiles and birds and pigs and all sorts of unclean animals. He said, no, I, I can't do it. But as he began to understand that God was teaching him something, he allowed himself or perhaps forced himself to question even some of the most fundamental things he thought he knew, ingrained in him from a young age, and say, what is God really saying here? He, 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 had, he was uncomfortable. It's always uncomfortable to do this. 
But if we recognize if God could save me, he could save anyone, there are some things in our hearts often ingrained deep, deep in our hearts and minds and our way of thinking that have to be uprooted and examined, turned over and sometimes cast aside. And, you know, doing that is difficult. It involves, especially for a preacher or an elder in the church or a teacher to say, listen, I was wrong about some stuff to admit that. It's easier just to say, I'm going to pretend I didn't discover I was, I, I, was, I was wrong, and now I understand how I was wrong. That's humbling. And that's good. Because things that humble us put us back in that position to receive grace. Back into that position where we see that everyone is equal. Everyone before God. No one's taller than anyone else because everyone's flat on their face in a posture of spiritual begging, spiritual poverty. Yes, this is pivotal in the book of Acts. And this concept is pivotal in the life of a Christian. Recognizing anew, and maybe in waves, and maybe more and more, that there is no one outside of the reach of the grace of God. That there is no preferred class or caste. That, that there, was, there was a story I heard once about a... a uh, northern India, and someone came by and said to the man who ran it, you know, there's one of your patients dying on the road a couple miles from here. He said, I don't think that's true. No one has left. Everyone's accounted for. And he sent a few men from the, the, the uh, leper colony down there to, to find what was going on. And they found a man who'd been trying to reach this hospital. He'd been dragging himself along, and, and he just collapsed from thirst and hunger. They picked him up and gently carried him in and placed him on a bed and they gave him food and water and slowly they brought him back around. And the first thing he said was, when they came and got me, they didn't even ask my name. You see, in India, your name indicates your caste. It can be used quickly to determine what your value is. But to this Christian hospital, the value of everyone was unspeakable. People made in the image of God. Male and female made he them in his image. People who've fallen away into sin but are not beyond God's reach and his ability to save. Let us pray that this year we will continue to have these kind of epiphanies. That we will see where there has been entrenched in our minds and down deep into our hearts prejudices, and preconceived notions about who is outside of the reach of God's grace, and that we, like Peter, like Cornelius, would respond by submitting and obeying, recognizing that we are someone under authority. And when our Savior, our Commander, says go, we go. Heavenly Father, we thank you that when Cornelius was told to send men, he sent them. When Peter was told to go, he went. And that even though it was difficult, even though it went against everything he'd been taught, he was willing to obey. And he was willing to enter the home of a Gentile. And Lord, as we read this sermon that he preached next week, we are going to be uh, blown away by just the grace present. The, the, the forgiveness and acceptance, the, the moving out of the church. And Lord, I suspect that what's holding back uh, the church in, in the West right now from revival is a lack 
of understanding that there is no one outside of the reach of God's grace, that there ought not be a target demographic, that the, the ideal family unit that we want to draw into a particular church, but that, Lord, the gospel ought to be seen as the cure for the curse that ails everyone, the, the cure for death, spiritual death, and that, Lord, we would not be very stingy with it. We would not be discriminating and discerning about where we, we take and employ this, this great balm for the soul, but that, Lord, we would see that there are people everywhere in need of the gospel, that we would go out and proclaim it in the words of the Puritans promiscuously, and that, Lord, we would see you mightily at work. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.